0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence. Well, 2020 comes at you fast, COVID, which we've been focusing on and now we've seen the protests happening all around the world, demanding that structural racism in the police and elsewhere stop. So this week we're picking up on something we spoke about last week, hydroxychloroquine. Those papers have been retracted and we're going to hear a bit more about what that means and lessons from that debacle. We're also going to take an evidence look at the protests. Do we know about the structural effects of racism? And as this is happening during a pandemic, is there evidence to back up any concerns about transmission of the coronavirus? As always in Talk Evidence, we're joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan. Helen is UK research editor for the BMJ, as well as arresting GP. Helen, hello.
1: Hi,
0: Duncan. And Carl is a professor at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford, as well as Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Hello, Carl. Hi, Duncan. Last week, we talked about some of the expressions of concern onto hydroxychloroquine papers in The Lancet and in the NEJM. And they somehow must have been listening in because before we even got that episode out, they had gone and retracted them. Um, But retraction is often not the end of the story. And uh, Helen and Carl, you've been looking into this a little bit further.
1: We have. We wanted to come back to these uh, two papers. And I think what is a new uh, EBM theme, which this COVID pandemic is bringing into focus. And I'm going to say that this is about data transparency predominantly. Both of these retracted uh, studies use data from Surgisphere. And they're on different topics. One was on hydroxychloroquine, the one in The Lancet, very hot topic. And the other was on whether there was an association between ACE inhibitors or ARB medications and COVID infection. And Carl and I have been following the hydroxychloroquine paper more closely, in part because this was the paper that seemed to draw attention to the issue um, and highlight the fact that there might be a problem with this surgesphere data. And quite soon after it was published, there were concerns raised about how plausible the data were. Carl, will you tell us about what you and others noticed?
2: (sighs) Well, it's really interesting. There was this first paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that appeared on May the 1st, and this was 8,900 patients with COVID from 169 hospitals in Asia, Europe, and North America. And it used this data from the Surgical Outcomes Collaborative Registry, Surgisphere for short. And what that showed is it reported on the ACE inhibitors. But the first thing that concerned me is that 21 days later, A second paper appeared from the group in The Lancet and the registry had increased in size. It was now 96,000 patients from 671 hospitals in six continents. So immediately you see papers like that, you think, well, this must be a team who knew what they're doing. A large team, including epidemiologists and statisticians, didn't include any of them. The first paper had five authors, the second had four. It was the same team. So I was like, it's implausible to get this type of research out at that speed in this time. And, and I think what was interesting about it is people around the world in Australia started to challenge the data. They just said, look, first off, these numbers don't match what's happening on the ground. Other countries were saying for you to have this data, there's ethics requirements. Where are you getting it? And some in like the African continent were just saying this is not feasible to get this level of information because it takes weeks, if not months, to get the data and to check it. So I think that's the first and if you look at the speed of it it went from appearing to publication then very rapidly a correction notice was issued by the Lancet because of these errors but then what happened is an expression of concern and both studies almost simultaneously then retracted the papers.
1: Pause there, Carl, because what we should say is that after the Lancet issued their expression of concern when we were recording last week, they said that an independent audit of the provenance and validity of the data has been commissioned by the authors not affiliated with Surgisphere and is ongoing. And then when retracting the papers, three of the four co-authors said... Independent peer reviewers informed us that Surgisphere would not transfer the full data set, client contracts and the full ISO audit report to their servers for analysis. And the issues were similarly described in the NAJM paper. They said, because all the authors were not granted access to the raw data and the raw data could not be made available to a third party auditor, we were unable to validate the primary data sources underlying our article. And so they requested that the article be retracted. And Carl, you have done more research than either Duncan or I on databases, <laughs> which sums in my case zero. So what would, um, what would an audit of the database be? What were they actually trying to do in that process?
2: Well, look, let's just first track back a bit. In the contributor statement in the Lancet article, It says the corresponding author and co-author had full access to all the data in the study and had final responsibility for the decision to submit for publication. So what that means is you've been delivered a database by some organization and you have that full data on your server and you can access it. So there's a contradictory statement that doesn't make sense to me within what they've said in the retraction versus what they said in the submission. Importantly, when you have access to the data, you do particular checks on that data. You might be verifying the data, validating some of the dates or the ages. So, for instance, you put range and consistency checks to ensure, for instance, people are, uh, are between the ages of 1 and 120. And if you get a number outlying of that, you start to be concerned. So that's important in terms of the integrity of your data. But also you're looking for a chain of your data to say this data is actually verifiable and accurate in some way. So for instance, when you look at it and say there's mortality in this hospital, how can you actually verify that's true? You might go back to the original hospital records and check that data That's where the problem comes in. That takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to do well. And if you look at the size of the team and the date structure of this, it's just impossible to be able to do that.
1: Well, there's lots of themes for us to unpick here, but I wanted to begin by um, sharing with listeners a conversation I had with Fiona Godley, editor in chief of our journal, The BMJ, just to set the scene on how common retractions are and what it's like to handle requests for them.
3: We get people asking us to retract stuff quite regularly, but the actual number of retractions, I think people might be surprised at how low it is, although it's definitely going up. Um, And there was a a study... um, back in 2012 in PNAS by Fang et al where they, they looked at um, retraction since 1973 in PubMed and, and of all the millions of articles in PubMed they found just over 2,000 articles that have been retracted.
1: And what's it like being on the sharp end of receiving those complaints perhaps directly calling for retraction or raising serious concerns? What's it like to try and unpick as an editor um, whether there is a major problem with something that you've published?
3: It can be awful you know one can feel thoroughly thoroughly sick about the whole thing and, and and the initial thing you think oh lord we've made a big mess um and then actually often when you look more closely it is more like a disagreement about the content than than a fundamental problem with an article um sometimes requests to retract come from the authors which is the case with these um surgesphere articles in the Lancet and the new england journal and that that's obviously easier and, and To my memory, the only paper we've recently retracted, the BMJ, was in uh, a paper published in 2000 and was retracted in 2003 because the authors found a fundamental flaw in their work and um, asked us to retract it. That's a a relatively straightforward thing to do. Um, When a request comes, you know, very much from critics of a paper, then that can be very hard to manage. The, The... the the most sort of high profile one we've had was with the Statins article published Which um, I know published. well
1: of course being Which a you
3: know well. <laughs> um the, the Statins article we published a paper by John Abramson and colleagues in Har- at Harvard. Um and um just for listeners' interest it, it made a it was about the um Really questioning whether people should be put on statins when they're at low risk of heart disease, and I mentioned a, a, a an amount of harm that was being caused by statins, which was thought to be an error and we got a big push from uh, Rory Collins and colleagues in Oxford saying this was really dangerous and bad. Um, we corrected what seemed to have been an error in a figure about the harms, but Rory Collins and, and his colleagues really felt that we should retract the paper, and it became a very high profile issue and obviously statins are one of the most commonly prescribed drugs that was hugely important um, in that respect and what i felt was really the good thing about the response was that rather than us deciding as editors and me deciding as editor because i was already invested in the fact that we'd published the paper and and i defended it to some extent with the correction um, and i didn't think it needed retracting i thought the rest of the paper stood and was very strong um so what we did was, was ask for an independent person to look at this. Um she and her very good committee that she set up were very transparent and we published everything and I said to her we would do what she said, we would do whatever she recommended. And um there were criticisms of the journal, but her view was their view was that we didn't need to retract the paper. So I felt that was a good process.
1: Obviously, these were two very high profile papers, um, both expressions of concern about the Lancet paper from scientists and then um, both of the papers being retracted so quickly, almost simultaneously. Um, And some of the commentary has suggested that perhaps journals or the peer review process should have detected um, problems with these papers as they went through. To, to what extent do you think that's fair? I think it would have been quite hard
3: under these circumstances to detect uh, a, a problem with the papers. I mean, there might have been some um, things that would cause you to, to pause um, like the fact somehow the name Surgisphere doesn't exactly, as, as a kind of source of these data, doesn't exactly make you think this was an academic um, operation. Um, and then th- there was the fact that there was very little detail on the source of the data. So I think I think um, it is, you know, in retrospect with, with uh, hindsight, which is always very easy, um, interesting that, that no one sort of seemed to question the source of the data i think I think, and were they ethically um, and appropriately gathered, uh, so looking in hindsight, you can see that but i i, I don 't think I feel terribly critical of of the Lancet New learn in this case, especially in the context of covid because whether right or wrong, there is this sort of spurious urgency about um, about about you know this particular issue, obviously in the current throes of the pandemic, and the other thing I think is. The risk that we all fall into as editors is that um, I guess the papers came in, and both papers confirmed views that were out there about the 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 benefits or harms of hydroxychloroquine, and and in the New England Journal case, the ACE inhibitors. So they sort of seem to go along with what we wanted to hear, or what we were expecting to hear, and that's always a bit of a trap for journal editors that you have kind of confirmation Mm -hmm. bias and don't apply quite so much scrutiny. So there's quite a lot of reason to to to, you know the, the need for speed and confirmation bias Um, but looking at it obviously now in in the light of what we know uh, i think there are things that we ought to be doing um, and and ways we can improve things one of them is we ought to be a bit dubious in fact possibly not not published um, observational studies of treatments i think that, that you know that becomes a problem but Quite a wild well, idea. you know what I mean I mean I mean On we, we do recognize that randomized control trials are the are the way to look at whether treatments are effective or not um, so I you know we need to be quite skeptical I think about observational studies of treatments um, then when you get to these big database studies we we do need as this example has shown us to be much more concerned about where the data are from, have they been ethically and properly gathered um a paper with very few authors on it but but publishing results from such vast numbers is is should raise doubts, I guess. So, you know, I think it's I think it's tricky and I think both journals did the right thing in, in acting quickly, uh instigating independent review um as asked for by the co-authors and, and also then obviously retracting because the co-authors asked them to. That made it quite straightforward for them.
1: So loads there to discuss from Fee, but I thought we should start, Carl, just with the implications for the ongoing studies um, on hydroxychloroquine. And we heard that the solidarity trial um, run by the WHO was paused when that retracted study um, was originally published, um, which seems um, to Fee's point of trials being how you work out whether a drug has benefit was very striking. The idea that that this paper was throwing a whole trial into jeopardy
2: i do i agree with 95% of what fiona said um there's with with trials we we try to be rigorous and p- apply what we call internal validity so they're registered they have protocols we criticize them if they switch outcomes And when they're published, we also take sometimes their results because their outcomes are not appropriate. They haven't had follow up for long enough. What observational data tries and does is have external validity. It applies to the real world situation. And there's a temptation to take that data and use it to back up, like you say, our own confirmation about what we think is the right thing to do. And that's the same for drugs and it's the same for non-drugs. So we should be clear about when we want randomised controlled trials and when that evidence applies and when we use that to inform judgments. There are some times when observational evidence is helpful, when there are rare harms, for instance, that you wouldn't pick up in clinical trials, when the outcomes might be very long in the future, when you haven't got trials that inform five, ten years. And they're also useful for confirming effects from trials in real-world populations. So we still should use observational data, but we should understand what we use it for and what we need it for.
1: I guess one interesting thing here is the profile, particularly of of this paper. Um, And I think the BMJ has published an observational study um, looking at hydroxychloroquine in the pandemic as well. So I suppose there's also this issue of the visibility and, and the brand being put behind those messages which ultimately are about associations and not about causation?
2: Well, what will be the problem here is that people will now start to tarnish all of the research that comes, irrespective of it being observational or randomised trials. If their belief system is hydroxychloroquine works, their confirmation will tell them that everything that now comes is fraudulent, potentially. So, in fact, what you'll have to do is build up more evidence... If it is shown not to be beneficial and potentially harmful, you'll need more evidence to overcome that confirmation and the, the sort of problems we've now introduced in the research by saying actually potentially quite a significant amount of this research in this pandemic is not trustworthy.
1: Is confirmation bias in your catalogue of bias, Carl?
2: It is. The other one that's quite interested in there is experimenters bias as well experimenter's bias with when the people actually doing the research are so invested in the outcome that actually they want it to work that actually the trial starts to be manipulated in some way to show it in the which best which It's also light.
1: related to the hot stuff bias which you, which I think you've mentioned on this show before which hydroxychloroquine has yeah. definitely become that hasn't it? And I th- I think Theo Um to that.
2: I'm not even sure in this out uh, we 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 had a conversation about this the other day. And hot stuff bias is when a topic is fashionable. Investigators may be less critical in their approach to their research. Investigators and editors may not be able to resist the temptation to publish the results. In this Covid outbreak, I think we need a flaming hot stuff bias because we've seen that happen a lot. Because it's the only show in town... And to be honest with you, the research is being published for me at such a pace, you can't keep up with it. So I'm not sure how peer reviewers, editors are over this. But I think there's such a surge in information that you feel you've got to get it out there in time to get the information out there so it can be used in clinical practice. We've seen here this is not always the best thing to do.
1: The other thing I thought we should touch on was this issue of big database studies um, and the fact that those types of data sets are increasing. And what what practical reflections you had on how authors can behave more responsibly, what they should be sure that they see before they submit their work. And also, I guess, what red flags peer reviewers should be keeping their eye out for. I mean, we we haven't really attached blame to the peer reviewers here as such, but some of those things mentioned around, you know, the scant detail the implausible balance of authors to time and amount of data that's being processed—that's something that the peer review process, and I—I I would include editors in that with their internal review as well—could um, keep their eyes out for more.
2: Well, look, I feel very strongly about this because we've what we've done in the last twenty years is trash randomized control trials. They're not registered. Their outcomes are poor. Their randomization's not done well. They're not blinded. And so we said they're not poor, good quality, sufficient quality to use to inform decisions. But what we'll do is instead let a flood of big data that at a press of the button, you can produce information and put it out there. There are three things I now want to see. The big three protocols pre-published, because you have to do that in a registered way with tr- clinical trials. Where can I go and see if this is registered and where is the protocol? In fact, you do that with systematic reviews. But we don't seem to do that with big data observational studies. I want to know what you were setting out to do and what were the outcomes pre-specified. Number two is I want some form of validation and verification of the data within that structure. How do we know this is truth? Did you go back in some way and source a percentage of data to test whether it was accurate or not? So I want that to be understood. And then my third point, which I think now is mandatory, it has to be accessible so that if somebody wants to verify your data, now it doesn't mean it's open and available, but for the next few years that data is held by you as the corresponding author or the principal investigator so somebody else can join the team and verify that actually it's truthful and it can be accessed by other people so that they could do secondary analysis or check what you've done
1: and it sounds like some change in that third option might might be upon us and i noticed that in a in an article published in the guardian the lancet or one of its editors was was um quoted as saying that they plan to look further at their at their data sharing policies and certainly at bmj we do have those so we require a data sharing statement for all of our research papers But for papers that don't report a trial, we don't currently mandate that the authors need to share the data. They just have to say whether they will, although we would obviously encourage them um, to to do that um, where appropriate. But perhaps, as you're saying, Carl, it needs to go further.
2: I'm going to start going into rant mode here almost because it annoys me that we say a clinical trial has to be registered. And then it can be published. But what we say when we do a study like this is we say, well, it's not a clinical trial. And then nobody can really identify and define what we mean by clinical trials. I think if this evidence applies to clinical settings and is about interventions that are to change practice, then they should be registered and there should be a protocol that sets out at least the primary and secondary outcomes and where the data comes from. And so that would be a very simple fix for journals to say, These have to be registered with a protocol. It doesn't have to be an all-seeing protocol, but at least they're minimum items. And then, based on that, you can have some verification process at least going, they haven't changed their outcomes, they haven't switched them. Actually, they did have access to this data and it's clear where it's come from.
1: Carl, you had some really interesting ideas about peer review as well.
2: I think we have to remember that peer review is largely unchanged over the last what, 100 years. It's it's not a professional organisation of peer reviewer. People are doing it in their spare time. And to pick up this, it's much easier with the retro to look back and say, ah, it was obvious there were only five people on the journal and on the team. And that was obvious they didn't have the skills. So I think this would easily slip through peer review. I think what is important here, and this is an important aspect for some of these journals. We have downgraded and lost the debate about much research. It's almost like if you send a letter in there, it doesn't mean anything. But actually, that's what we need to reinvigorate, people's eyes on research, and reinvigorate these responses. So these journals like The Lancet and New England should have rapid response systems, that it goes up within 24 hours, And actually, if somebody has a concern, it has to be addressed by the authors. And we need more debate about all of these research that goes up. And we need to somehow prioritise that as an important aspect. What I would like to see mandatory is the peer reviewers not so much put their peer review up, put their concerns up as almost an article in its own right that says, here's the concerns we had about this paper. And in addressing them, whether they consider they have been addressed appropriately or not. I don't think that should mean it's not published. It just means our assessment of bias, our assessment of the uncertainties in the evidence is a subjective opinion. And we should make more of that. So if you have two free peer reviewers, I'd like them to actually have more prominence in what they think the research means and what were the uncertainties.
0: Well, I think this is probably something that's going to run and run and we'll be coming back to talk more about that. So now let's turn our attention to the other big story of the moment, uh, which is the protests that are going on around the world as frustration with the status quo kind of boils over. Now we want to take an evidency look at that. And I think we've published um, some things on this in the past in the BMJ, but obviously this is a really complex issue because it's not just about the hard numbers here. Um, That's not the only thing that's important. Uh, Helen, you've been thinking about this.
1: So, over recent days, we've seen the collision of two, what seem to be intricately linked pandemics one of COVID and one of racism. And COVID is a new problem which has been very active in our minds in recent weeks and it's proved very good for exposing cracks or sometimes even gaping holes in all kinds of systems, um, our evidence systems, our healthcare systems and now we seem to be adding society to that list as well. Um, We know that we've got health inequalities um, and that those from specific ethnic minority groups have experienced different outcomes from the COVID pandemic um, in different countries. And these signals of harm to those groups in the UK triggered the UK government to ask Public Health England for a review into whether and why there were ethnic disparities in COVID. That review also suggested um, that PHE would make recommendations for change. The report was published a few days ago. By the time it came out, it largely confirmed what others had already shown in the interim from various countries. And you can listen back to Ben Goldacre and Callum Semple on on our show talking about how they use big data to explore uh, that issue. And you can also read the report, which we will include a link to. Um, But there was a problem because the report... Was meant to include recommendations about how things might change and that part of the report was lacking and that has led to a big outcry particularly from minority communities and and why um why was it missing that information is this an example not just of health inequality being illustrated by covid 19 but about structural racism in the way that we're approaching these difficulties in our population And this feeds into what has become a very active and current discussion about an old global problem of racism. Um, And that's really front and centre stage since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, triggering these race protests. And some people have seen that as a distraction from COVID efforts and been worried about the risks of people coming together to protest. But other people have viewed it as one and the same issue because we can't, Tackle COVID without tackling these issues of racial disparity and like many people this week I've been trying to understand how these fit together uh, and while I had Fee on the line I thought I'd ask her her thoughts on this matter because she was fresh from writing her editor's choice from the journal this week and she had been writing about this very issue.
3: Yeah, I have given it some thought because I had to write editor's choice, and we was, we have a lot, quite a lot of you know, a few really good, strong articles about this, and and I think that's helped me to understand better the what some of our commentators have called a false dichotomy between um, anti-racism protesting and um, the, the, the the trying to contain COVID, people saying that protesters are you know contributing to the spread of COVID. I think the view is really strongly from all of the people who've written for us on this that actually racism is a co-factor and a, and a, and a, a, a sort of material a de- determinant of um, the pandemic itself and that it's absolutely essential that these protests you know they need to be done safely, people need to protest peacefully and they need to protect themselves as far as possible with masks and any social distancing that can be achieved. But, but that, 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 that the, the, the pandemic shouldn't stop the protests because the protests uh, need to highlight the, the, the contribution that racism is making to the pandemic itself. So they are very, very closely interwoven and the kind of structural racism that we are at last beginning to recognise in society and in healthcare are um, damaging people's lives and uh, something we all must fight against.
1: Carl, I was interested in your thoughts on timing here because you have done some campaigning in the past, particularly with Sling the Mesh, um, And to me, it feels like there is momentum behind this idea of needing to of needing to tackle structural racism at the moment. And I wonder how you reflect on on what's been happening from that point of view.
2: Well, look, I I think it's incredibly important that when people set out, they step back and think, ask the question, why is this important to me? What change do I want to see? And then set off on a mission that actually they're going to continue going because nothing is going to change in the short term. And I think that's the first thing I've realized when you try and campaign is you really think about what do you want to see happen at some point in the future. And there will come times when you start to give up. And that's why campaigns fail a year down the line. You're busy, worked in the way, something else gets on so i think this issue of inequalities disparities that are set out in healthcare by race are incredibly important and it does need people to take up the campaign but they're talking this is a five ten year campaign because it's the solutions are not going to come very quickly because they're deep rooted ingrained in society and i think um I'm moved when people put aside their risk. And I'm very clear that, you know, health is not just about COVID. It's a wider perspective problem. So if you feel you need to go out there and protest because you want something to change, we I respect that. And I think, you know, the, the issue about mass gatherings and the problems with that is just a side issue. If people are prepared to put that risk aside and say, this is so important to me now, I want to affect change. What I'd like to see now is a concerted effort to start to understand the deep-rooted problems. There's, There's always a quote I use from Albert Einstein at these times. He said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 59 minutes on the problem and one minute on the solution. And what happens is everybody always wants to quickly come say and say, here's a solution. But I'm saying we need to spend research infrastructure and funding, we need policy and all that aligned to start to say, what are the actual problems here?
1: It was interesting when you look at the PHE scope that they laid out for the review, that they said they were going to investigate basically whether there was a problem and they were going to come up with recommendations. But they explained that the NIHR was going to be the person that would look into why those problems existed. So in a way, as I first read the scope, it had seemed a little bit strange to want to quantify whether there was a problem and then come up with a solution without necessarily doing that middle bit of work. Perhaps perhaps we already know a lot about the why, um, and that would give you clues about how to move forwards.
2: Well, we know in other infections... Ethnicity has a significant impact in influenza and outcomes. We know in cardiovascular disease, disproportionately affected, diabetes. So there are all these range of issues that we know about. The key, though, is if you're going to affect the change. You have to understand the core problem. Where does it come? Where do you put your solution, if you like? Is it an early years educational issue we need to deal with? Is it a diet exercise issue? Is it an economic issue? Is it an environment issue? All of these things will go into it. But it doesn't come back to one of the key things, I think, which we all have to deal with is our unconscious bias. It's been a podcast of biases, (laughs) this program, hasn't it? And I think it's really interesting, this, this concept, is that yeah, you have to check in a lot about your own thoughts, where they sit, and speak to other people to see how are they affected, because it's all different depending on your current context and situation. It's different from an old person than a young person, different for a black person than a white person, how we see the world and how it affects us. And it's very easy to just look at it through your own glasses. And I find that really interesting to check in with different people. And if they have a different perspective from me, it's real. And I am concerned in the past that we've come through different eras, that we are still dragging through perspectives. The world was very different in the 17 and 80s, very different in the 90s and 2000. And I hope it will be different going forward, that we do actually improve Some of these effects for a wide range of people who feel marginalised, disadvantaged and at times uh, are not given the opportunities that they should be done because of our unconscious biases.
1: There's clearly the fact that racism is wrong and should be fixed. But I've been wondering how evidence can help us play a role in thinking through the situation that we're in at the moment, particularly with respect to the protests Um, And that is, do we know anything about the harm of gathering, public gatherings?
2: Well, it's very interesting. If you looked at the evidence before this outbreak, and this comes from SAGE, the advisory group, and the sort of systematic reviews that you look out at, mass gatherings, but most of this evidence is applied to influenza, not coronavirus, were perceived to have a minimal impact on outbreaks. That's why we carried on with football matches going into the outbreak. However, the interesting differences with coronaviruses is this super spreading concept where we see asymptomatic people, pre or individuals who seem to be able to generate a large number of infections. There's a particular good example of that in a church services in uh, South Korea where they had hundreds of people affected from one gathering. We've seen it within choirs as well. So I think what we'll see is actually a different perspective from mass gatherings with coronavirus. However, the flip side to that is, it seems the seasonal evidence is starting to be more stronger in that temperature and humidity, and that if you're outside with the UV light, your risks drop particularly because the stability of the virus is much less in the external environment. So my perspective is, if you're outside, the risk is very low. Therefore, I think we will get to a perspective and a position where we'll have gatherings because that will not add much over about what you would do going around your daily life. I think the risk in enclosed spaces are much higher. And the risk when the temperature is lower and the humidity is lower, remembering the skiing trips where people had these super spreading events, much higher. So I feel reassured about outside gatherings. And to be honest with you, I would see us going into the summer arena to start to have more outside gatherings because I think the evidence is reassuring that the risk is minimal.
1: And there was a bigger evidence question I had on this issue as well. And Carl, I'm not going to grill you on evidence around ethnic disparities. Um, instead, I decided to call Sonia Saxena, who's a professor of primary care at Imperial College London. She works as a GP and as an academic. And earlier this year, with others, she wrote in the BMJ on the topic of transforming healthcare systems for the UK's multi ethnic population. And I wanted to ask Sonia a bit more about her thoughts surrounding the Public Health England report. Sonia, thanks so much for taking a look at the Public Health England report for us. I wonder if we could start there and just hear your initial thoughts having read it. So I think that what this report does is that it tells us some numbers.
4: Uh, It's reported that black and ethnic minority groups are, are at much higher risk of contracting severe COVID and being hospitalized. Um, it talks about higher mortality rates, but it doesn't really try to explain them in any way. Uh, and, it, and, and the differences appear to be ascribed to genetic factors or factors related to sort of underlying health status. Uh, and I think firstly, that's inaccurate. Um, there has to be something more than genetic factors underpinning this. Um, I got the sense reading it that black and minority ethnic groups were at risk because of some sort of metabolic disease that they're carrying Uh, and I think that because nobody's really measured any of the other factors that might be explaining this. we're, we're missing a trick. Um, and the other thing to, to notice is that the timing of it was very interesting, because um, the emphasis on cardiovascular disease and the elderly misses other wider information. So just this week, the BMJ you reported uh, that all the pregnancies that were delivered of the women who were uh, admitted to hospital, 75 um, percent of them were black or Asian. Now, they aren't going to be in the elderly group. So I I really do think we have to start looking at at the underpinning causes. And and one of the big areas has got to be exposure.
1: And do we know anything about those causes or can we draw um, evidence from other health conditions um, surrounding what we know about health disparities between people from different ethnic backgrounds? I think when you're
4: talking about uh, a combination of of an infectious illness, hitting somebody who might have some underlying physical vulnerability, then you do have to take into account some of those underlying comorbidities. And there are, for sure, some really strong gradients in health status, um, particularly for um, things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And we know that COVID attacks that aspects of it. Um, but there are other health disparities that are being ignored. So, for example, when we think about access to health care, you'd think that in a, a system of um, universal coverage, that everything would be fair and everybody has access to care free at the point of delivery. But I and lots of other people have demonstrated over the last 20, 25 years that actually repeatedly the patterns of health seeking behavior are very different so uh, people from black and minority ethnic groups access much less preventive care they're less likely to get their child vaccinated for example Um, I did a study back in the 90s in the BMJ that showed that Although consultations for children were were fairly equitable among black and minority and Asian ethnic groups, their chances of getting through and getting a referral were much lower than uh, the general population. Um, But what we have found over the last 20 years is this sort of pattern where repeatedly there's contact with health services uh, and the planned care is reaching the general population, the white population, but black and minority groups uh, somehow are coming in with more responsive care. So they're more likely to have avoidable conditions. They're more likely to have preventive care. And you see these disparities as well with um, material factors. Um, but of course, all of these things cluster together. And uh, I think that we do really need to do some more nuanced research around this. Part of the problem is, as we described in our January paper, um, that the systems that we have for monitoring ethnicity are really, really crude. You have two categories, black and white, and you have some subgroups around that. You have Asian um, and that really doesn't capture it at all.
1: It's interesting, um, as we've seen the protests as well this week, a lot of the focus there um, has been around structural racism, and there seems to be parallels between what you're describing, a system that we have here, a health system that we have built, that seems to be working for some people and not for other people.
4: I think that's right. Uh, I think that we are talking about structural racism, and we are also talking about institutional racism um, I I think that the boundaries between those two things are uh, a blurry but the institutional racism that I think has set in is is this sort of blindness about wanting to address uh, the the factors that some groups may be encountering and that Comes right from the top. You know, the Sage Committee is not representative of the general population. The decision makers—they're the people who are advising the government. That the government itself is deeply flawed in its representativeness of the population, Uh, and so therefore you have this mismatch, and that you have this blindness of of the reality of, of what's happening to people. You then have structural factors that are embedded within society that it which is deeply unfair so the people who are staffing our hospitals um, you know healthcare workers nurses people working in care homes porters cleaners the key workers that for about a week and a half we thought were really wonderful and we clapped them the carers in society, those people are really overrepresented from minority and ethnic groups. Now you can't tell me that those people haven't had a much higher risk of exposure. In fact, Public Health England itself has reported something like a sixfold increased risk of exposure to COVID among the, the sort of spot surveys we've done. And they've actually been very um, small surveys. We haven't really got to grips with the testing, but we never will get to grips with it if we haven't uh, got a nuanced and detailed um, uh, system of collection of information about the factors that might
1: be driving those infection those infection risks, those exposures. And you've had some experience um, in your academic role of trying to um, make changes, um, particularly with regard to diversity. I know we don't fully understand exactly perhaps the cause is clear enough here or we perhaps don't understand exactly what we need to do about them but are there um things that you learned about your approach to trying to change the culture of an institution or the the processes that are there um that might help in a situation like this so i
4: i'm professor of primary care at imperial college london and uh, i'm stepped forward to set up an opportunities committee within my own department and that was part of trying to um, improve and reform our department Um, and as an example we had a a big review um, related to the uh, Athena Swan award that we got so we we achieved a a silver Athena Swan award that um, rewards departments for their excellence in promoting Uh, women's academic, scientific women's academic careers. Um, But really what I learned in leading that across an elite institution like Imperial College does tend to be, um, is that the, the structures were not geared up to promote people fairly across the pinch points. So we had a very large Um, attraction of talent um, from all over the world Um, but people were not getting through and what I learned was that you need to look at it you need to shine a torch on these disparities you need to be aware of who's applying to come into your uh, school or institution or um, workplace Uh, and you need to see how you are processing people through is it fair or is it equal um, those are questions that i'd like people to ask and they need to to have enough information about people who are coming through uh, in order to to make any sense of that and so and how do fair and equal differ equal is everybody gets the same but not everybody who gets the same will end up in the same place if they started somewhere else to start with. So fair might be um, so that everybody ends up um, in the same place that they should be Um, and of course that's a a very difficult question but it's understanding that the field is not always fair uh, at the start point and you have to define what those start points are in every individual situation.
1: That was Sonia Saxena talking to us. I think she's stolen the last word from Carl this week.
0: So uh, that is it for this week's episode. Next week we're going to be back um, with some more COVID, but this time looking at the distance rule: one or two meters. So if you're interested in hearing that, then make sure you've subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We also want to hear from you. So if you have a comment for us or any questions, then go to bmj.com podcast podcasts where you can find out how to drop us an email or you can get hold of Helen and Carl on their social media handles. I'll include them in the podcast text. So, until next week, it's goodbye from me, goodbye from me,
2: and goodbye from me.
0: Take care out there.